Welcome to another edition of Top Lines and Tales podcasts. This week we continue with our Continental series, but change tack to a different species. The Texel sheep breed originated on the picturesque Isle of Texel on the North Dutch coast. Originally supposed to have been bred up from the Lincoln, Leicester and Wensleydale, all of which of course were mainly wool breeds. But by the turn of the century, the animals had established themselves as a lean and muscled meat breed, which had spread across Central Europe. I'm delighted to have on the podcast this week a chap I've known for a number of years and whose family have been breeding Texels since their first importation into UK, Robert Laird from Camwell. Robert, welcome. Hi. So I believe the story starts in 1971 when a wholesale butcher called Bill Jackson spoke to Jock McGregor and Ian Johnston in Lanark Mart about wanting better confirmation on slaughter lambs. And as with a lot of these imports, it was a light-on moment, wasn't it, Robert, that sparked a phenomenon that we have today? Well, Bill had an insight to what the, the market in Europe was, and he had seen these better-shaped lambs in Paris at the meat market, and uh, he just felt the stuff that he was getting through his slaughterhouse wasn't good enough for the export trade. So he felt that the, the breeds here could be doing me a bit of continental influence to make them better for export. And he must have talked a good story because the two of them bought it straight away and uh, uh, and they coupled with a chap called Sandy Grant who was perhaps a college advisor of some sort, was he, uh, Robert? Yeah, well, I obviously had maybe known about them as well, maybe been in previous trips to Holland perhaps, so uh, there was a bit of tie-up and, of course, I think we had some continental cattle in at that time, so, the, you know, the penny was beginning to drop that... Um, you know, that there was a continental ship, you know, that was going to do a job. Of course, and, and so Sandy Grant joined them and they set up the bones of the Texel Sheep Society at Jock's Place, I think, where it stayed for, for a good number of years. And the first imports, I think, were selected by Bill Jackson in Holland, but then they were refused entry by the ministry, I think, in, into the UK. Was was there maybe a hint of a made of isner issue there? Yeah, well, I think at that time uh, it was new to both countries, I think, made of isner, but there was definitely uh, a problem in Holland with them at that time, uh, which you can maybe set the alarm bells a wee bit here, but uh, no, they had to wait for uh, clearance from the ministry to get uh, imports by France that were clear of MV, and, but they didn't real. I don't think they realised that there was as many textiles in France at that time either. I'm going to come on to that, and, and Sandy, along with Blair Hill, I think, headed to the Paris show to try another route this time through France, and the trip was a bit interesting, Robert. Yeah, well, the, the French air traffic controllers who were in strike, who it's not an unusual scenario, as you probably know, Andy lived in France, I but uh, they were flying, uh, they were trying to fly to Glasgow to uh, Paris, and of course the, the, the closest they could get was Belgium, and they were sitting at the airport looking around, and uh, they saw the, what we weren't really 100% sure it was to start with, but a big wicker basket with a lot of kind of footballs and kit in it, and they discovered it was a Scottish football team were supposed to be playing in France, in Paris. <laughs> okay. So, uh, of course, they were the bold boys decided to get chatting with them and discovered they were also flying to Belgium. So they managed to tag along in the bus from Belgium to Paris with the Scottish football team, and that was the Paris show that they went to. That they actually put the feelers out and really made contact with the top breeders in France. It's fantastic. <laughs> Scotland should maybe have a Texel sheep as their mascot of a football team. <laughs> well, it was Ernie Walker. I, I remember Ernie Walker was the SFA president at the time, like, and he was a really nice guy, if I remember rightly. Like, So I think they, they managed to get their... Pa they got passes to say that they were part of the 
the the squad, as it were. So it was quite funny. <laughs> Excellent. Was it you that told me they met up with a guy called Will Hogg from Gala Shields? Yeah, I don't know uh, whether he was there looking at other breeds of sheep, but uh, they'd obviously come across him before. So, uh, and, and and then on on the way back, they managed to meet up with the ministry in in London. I think was that right to try and get yeah, to discuss think, this? I think so. They realised that the MV issue would have to be rectified, and that, uh, I think they actually got uh, permission fairly soon to get uh, imports in, in the early part of 74. Like, and so, I guess uh, that, that, that would be discussing again the quarantine rules that they need to go through to bring these sheep yep. in, in and where. And It's a tricky job. We've discussed with the, yeah, the limousine boys and the Charlie cattle boys about how difficult it was back then to get these animals through and, and the politics and the red tape that went with that. Would these be Dutch sheep in France, Rob, or the Texel already established itself as a French breed by then? I think they'd already established, but quite a lot of the, the French breeders, uh, we went on a trip there after that, and their philosophy, certainly the Pelzer philosophy, was that maybe every fourth generation they would go back to Holland and to get new bloodlines, and that would sweeten their sheep up a wee bit, because they realised that if they kept breeding those kind of French types, they were just kind of plainer type of sheep, but they, they did recognise they needed a wee bit more character in their sheep, and they got that from the Dutch side. Okay. Yeah. The first four UK members of the society were Jock McGregor, Andrew Barr, Ian Johnston, and a chap called Jimmy Lindsay. And uh, yes. th- those guys are sort of number one, two, three, four on the team sheet, as it were. Yeah, absolutely right. Um, and uh, also, eight rams had been borrowed in from Southern Ireland, which I think were more Dutch bred, and in conjunction with uh, Abro, uh, which is a sort of research farm there, isn't it, in, in, in Scotland? Yes, that's along at Blythe Bank, from five miles from where we are, but really quite close to the, the nucleus of all the breeders that got started. And Because uh, according to the first flock book, there would be Texels born in 72, on uh, those eight farms that were involved. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Will Jackson had a demonstration in his slaughterhouse at some point in either 72 or 73, where all the locals could go and see the offspring of these uh, uh-huh. Irish Dutch bred sheep that came into here. So um, that would have been a great eye opener, probably, for the locals. And they'd be um, just half crosses, Rob, though, wouldn't they? Just yes, aye. What would they cross? Yeah, the, what they cross those on? Would they pick the sort of thicker types of sheep, or would they just put them on hill use? Well, they were mostly black faces or half breeds or cheviots. Um, interestingly enough, um, when you look through the first flock book and you see all the the breeds that are mentioned in the first crosses, most of them would be black faced in this area. Oh. But um, I did read, funny enough, in a later journal that maybe near the 79 and 80, it was established that basically the Cheviot and the half-bred were the best cross to cross them with to, to, if you wanted to go down the grading up. And those lambs would be born at Bog House and Bog Hall and, and at uh, Jimmy Minto's and a few others that used those rams. Yes. Texels had been in Ireland since 1964, a long time earlier, and 100 sheep were imported into Ireland in 1972, but the MV over there caused all sorts of problems. And, and Certainly, I know there'll be flocks over there just as old as the ones that are here. I know that for a fact. Like by bringing the the first cross sheep in, of course, that's what sparked the grading up system. And we'll come on to that in a second. But let's talk about this first import. They brought in 13 rams and 26 gimmer lambs in January 1974, and I believe the society allowed two gimmer lambs and one tup per breeder. Is that right? More or less, I think that's more like, I think one of them got one, is one got three, I'm not sure why that was the case, but uh, yeah. And they weren't um, a huge investment for these guys, we're probably looking at two or three hundred quid a piece, is that right? 
Indeed, I would have an exact figure on what they were, but I think it would be along those lines anyway. I think it would only be fair to do justice to those first breeders that came in, and I'm going to just run briefly through a list there. We've got Boghouse and Boghill, Heathery Hall, James Lindsay we mentioned, Bill Jackson we mentioned, uh, Guy Hamilton of Hoods Hill, and he was Jock McGregor's brother-in-law, is that right? That's right, yep, aye, and uh, the late Colin McRae's father-in-law, believe it or not. Oh, I see, okay. And right. Young's at, at St John's Kirk, and uh, Blair Hill, you mentioned, was um, was he the farm manager at uh, St John's Kirk? Yes, okay. he was the farm manager at St John's, and had his own flock, so run alongside the, the St John's Kirk flock as well. And we got Jim Minto and, and um, William Hogg that we mentioned just now, and John Owens at Kirk and Tillett, uh, and yourselves at Camwell. So that's, that's yep. the original 13, if I've got them all listed, that, uh, that was right back at the start. Let me just go back to that grading up register, Robert. The Society introduced the letters PI, didn't they? Pure import after the registration yes. number. And this had swelled the numbers very quickly. But I believed it caused a bit of a stushy at the time, didn't it? Didn't some breeders oppose this? Yeah, well, I think, like all committees, there would be different directions that some folk would want to go. And um, uh, I think uh, they were allowed to start with, but they never ever had the PI after their name. It was only the imports that could have that, mm -hmm. of course, but there was a lot of flocks. It was a good way of getting numbers quickly. Some of the breeders did oppose this, though, didn't they, and uh, didn't one or two pull out of the import? Yeah, well, I think that was obviously a wee bit of a bust-up in an early committee meeting, and uh, there, there was still a, a vacancy there for some of the sheep that had already been selected. So uh, Jimmy Minto, who uh, was probably only about four miles from here, knew that my father used to show carcasses at the local abattoir at the Christmas show, so he knew he might be quite interested in uh, something that was going to have a better carcass, and uh, my father jumped at the chance of uh, getting involved in this, this importation, and it, it was really a bit of luck. Had he uh, seen so them? Did he know anything about them at all? Was that I just him going on faith? I don't think so. I don't think so. Whether he had been to Will Jackson's Open Day the, the year before, it's quite possible. Um, no doubt he would probably have supplied him with fat lambs at, at some point, but... Um, I would have thought he would, he would have done some research, I would have thought. Um, and Will Jackson's uh, abattoir was only just up the road from you, was it not? Yeah, it was in Simonton, yeah. Okay. So, uh, and Will Jackson would be one of the reasons why Lanark was and probably still is home to the Texel breed. I mean, he was, uh, you know, they were the guys that are all around him. So, you know, we have to give this guy a, a lot of credit for this. Oh, absolutely. And because he's at the coalface, he, he knew what the market was wanting. Like, But to this day, there's Texel breeders everywhere you turn in Lanarkshire, especially around this bigger area, like, and mm -hmm. no matter how new they are, they're all, they've got a wee niche, and they're doing really well, like, but this area is high, and it's, it's late, and stock generally does well for here, wherever it goes, and that, that's worth a lot for your selling south. And some of those first imports, would there be a few gimmers amongst them? The, the reason I ask that is I've got a painting here, well, a limited edition print that was produced, I think, in 1999 for the 21st anniversary of the breed, and it's got a picture of the five original ewes in the centre from 1974. So would there be, or would that, yes. just be, that just be a selection of them, maybe? I think those would be the ones that were at Boghouse. Uh, I think Boghouse Daffodil is in that... Uh, and anyway, a second import was planned for September of that year, I think, and this time they brought in yep. quite, a, quite a boatload, didn't they? And that founded some yep. of the great flocks that are still familiar names in the breed today. 
And I'll, again, I'll run through a few of these in, in, a, in a list of who's who, if you like. We've got Keith Jamieson at Annan, Jimmy Warnock at Watch Now, Jim Clark, Garn Goward, Morgan Milner in, uh, Great Langside, McKero, Grogfoot, uh, Jimmy Monroe, who I think was Fiona Sloan's father, is that right? That's right, yep. Geordie right. uh, McElwraith at Beleg, and Shortfinger was, was always on the lookout for something new, wasn't he? And um, we've got uh, Magara, Robin Young, Jimmy Dunn, you mentioned, uh, Milton of the North, of course, John Mackey, uh, uh, um, Skerritt Mains, Stevie Harrison at Tinwald. Um, and Bob Adam, I, I noticed amongst that list, uh, another pioneer, but uh, he never quite stayed with the, with, the, with the breed very long, did he? No, I don't think so. Uh, from what I can gather, I think uh, Morgan Millen at Turin would, would end up probably getting his Texels. Uh, I think Turin, you know, would get a lot of... You look at later flock books, uh, and uh, there's an awful lot of breeders that you've never heard of again, but their sheep all seem to end up, you know, with, with a new, in an area with a top breeder, if uh, you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, maybe they got the other people yeah. to go for them, and then they, with an understanding they were going to have yeah. them afterwards. And, and yeah, uh, Wolford's Thin Acres, Winbush, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of a lot of breeders that are still there today, but uh, these imports would be the letter A, is that right? 73 would be C. C, uh-huh, okay. I think they wanted to keep the A's and the B's so that 71 was A and 72 was B. I think they would probably keep it that way because it was these textiles in the flock book that were born in 72. Of course, you know, the, of already course, like the early crossbreds, of course, yes, from the yeah. Irish ones. Okay, yeah. that makes sense. Yeah. So let's look at some of those early imported rams. Then uh, I've got a topic called Camwell Constructor was an import, and obviously yeah, right was, then. there's a story behind him. Tell me about him. That's right. The the tops were all drawn out the hat, and uh, I'm not sure which breeder it was, but there was a top had escaped a couple of days beforehand and had ended up getting a barrel load of feeding, and it was not looking that well. It was a wee bit off colour and. <laughs> Whatever breeder it was that, that drew that top uh, hadn't had worked with sheep before, so my father had offered to swap his top for that top because my father was a sheep man and he knew how to turn the sheep round. So, uh, so basically he took the top and he probably knew what he was doing. It maybe was a better top than he had, but <laughs> it, turned out, it turned out to be a great move because Constructor can be found in, a, in an awful lot of pedigrees of some of the best sheep that are in the breed. He was from the, the Gurney flock, and uh, we had one ewe from Gurney, but there was quite an, a lot of those early imports in Lanarkshire, all, all were from Gurney or Plus P, and uh, those were the two flocks I would say that um, they did really well, especially from the Annan flock, the Plus P, and, 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 and at Boghouse as well. So, uh, yes. Okay, and uh, you mentioned Annan. Keith had uh, Annan captain, I think, in an import, and then he had Annan double diamond, who again was in a lot of pedigree yep. about a couple of early rams with influence, weren't they? Any more rams from those early imports? We didn't get any more rams, whereas Keith would, would get rams just about in every importation, and maybe even some Dutch rams. Mm -hmm as well in the 75, 76 importations, so um, it gave him more scope, but uh, no, it was it was fantastic. How, all the breeders seem to work together, they seem to swap use over the rams, and you know, the early flock book, most of the breeders in Lanarkshire would have a bit of a U at this top, and then another one to that top, and <laughs> uh, it was quite interesting. Like. And, and moving on, and the first show to have classes, I believe, was Les Mago show in 1978, and you guys are already jockeying for position, weren't, weren't you? Uh, did you win it, Robert? No, no, my, my father was the judge actually, oh, okay. so that was the, I, I don't even remember being there to be honest with you, just before my time a wee bit. Uh -huh. <laughs>
<laughs> but they'd be a good number of sheep, but just about everybody in Lanark would turn out for it, I guess. Oh, absolutely. Like, and there had been classes at Dumfries show later on in the year as well, and uh, they'd, been, they'd been quite respectable classes as well, by the sound of things. Mm -hmm. And everybody that had been involved in those early importations, you know, by 78, well, we I think we would have five imported ewes by that time. Whereas, you know, some of the other guys would maybe have a few more than that. So uh, it was good times. And to this day, Les Mahigas still a fantastic show at Texas. Of course. And they'd be a spectacle, wouldn't they, at the time? They'd be uh, coming, oh, to look right. at the, coming to look at their freak show a bit, a bit like some of the cattle dreams that came in and did the same. I know. I know. <laughs> and on this podcast, we often attribute the success of a breed to a few outstanding females. And again, some of these would have come from those early imports, wouldn't they, Robert? And uh, tell me about a few of those. In the, the second importation in the back end of 74, there was a U, she was a gimmer by that time, Boghouse Daffodil, she was named, uh, and she in 1979 bred uh, Boghouse Ian, and was sold for 13,000 to the McCarrows. 13,000? Uh, yes. In 79, that was a big trade, like, mm. and um, uh, I can remember one of his sons, I was at a stock just in the Stonefield Hill, and there was a top called Groutfoot Jungle Boy uh, that Ali Brown had bought, and I can just remember him and no more, and he was a tremendous muscle sheep and a big square top with tremendous depth. And I think that would be the top that would be behind a lot of the fat stock shows that you know both McKerro and Alec Brown would promote in the Texels in those early days. Yeah. You know, so uh, it's incredible um, the offspring that can be descended from that. You will maybe go into some of them later, but uh, it's really interesting. But no, she she was first class. And she went on breeding uh, for a while, I think, didn't she? Yeah, well, I think their last lambs would be born in 81, but yeah. uh, that was quite typical because we had a 77 Gurney ewe and she died just before she was due to give birth at 10-year-old. They picked the moments, eh? They picked the moments. <laughs> I know, but her last daughter, you know, that was before the embryo job was kicking in. Her last daughter was born with us in 86 and we showed her at the Highland Show, you know, so there was tremendous longevity in those early bloodlines. Like You mentioned another you, a French you, I think, from uh, that John Mellon bought from... Uh... Yes, a Simone you that uh, John bought for Henry Griffiths. His, I think uh, Henry was supposed to emigrate into Australia and had a dispersal sale, and I think it was 1982, and it uh, would have quite a fair sale. Um, and John Mellon would have bought this you I think I think she was either Jean Lefer or Simone and uh, I, I think I remember seeing her and she was a tremendous carcass sheep and, and really you know a real good example but uh, and again we're talking Henry Griffiths is just up the road from you isn't he he was was uh, grandson Harry he's got Texels at the moment like and yeah. he's, he's, he's got an eye for a sheep there's no doubt about that like and going back to Camwell some of those early ewes you mentioned yeah, the, uh, Gurney you are they Dutch is that Dutch uh, no, that was French. Probably some of the early tops that we would buy would have a bit of Dutch influence in them. And we're probably doing the same scenario as what the French were doing. We're just crossing the Dutch with the, with the French types to kind of sweeten them up a bit. With a plus PU, she was one of our 75 U's, and uh, she was the descent, the same family that um, Camel Sheriff came out of. Um, which was, he bred really well, Turin Union and a few others like, uh, so Gurney and Plus P were two of the top uh, flocks uh, in those early imports, I would have said. Obviously the society grew and it was soon up over a thousand members within a decade, I think. And, uh, and Absolutely. They, uh, and then they moved office down to Stonely on the Royal Showground and uh, roughly when would that be then? Oh, I'm not 100% sure. Uh, I'm guessing it would be the 
early 80s, I would have thought. Um, early 80s. And Sandy Grant, they, Sandy Grant that we mentioned earlier on, had been the first secretary. But I don't think he moved down there, did he? They changed no. the Yeah, the Ayrshire Cattle Society, once the numbers realised that there was a, a huge demand, the Ayrshire Cattle Society took over the handling of the pedigree side of things. And that was an air. And then, as, as you rightly said, they, they moved down to Stoneley after that um, and got some full-time staff. Who would be the secretary in down there, then? Well, I think the first one would be Helen Woodhouse, uh, from, from what I can gather, oh, and then okay. Jean Barber after that. Jean Barber um, after that. I remember Jean being there. I didn't realise Helen was there, to be fair. I chatted with you a week or two ago, and you mentioned an import of 130 texels in 1978 by some guy called Neil Souter from the Isle of Man. Can you tell me about that? It's a story there. Yeah, well, I was doing a bit of research. So certain families where the, the sheep have uh, really excelled, and uh, there's a line that... Um, I think has done exceptionally well. It was basically uh, the Cowboys sold a gimmer for 9,000 to Charlie Bowden, and uh, that uh, for Charlie is better. A serious amount of good sheep. The Sportsman's a star is one of them. But uh, mm -hmm. but basically, when you follow the female line back, it goes back uh, a whole beef ewe. Um, it was by uh, an Ettrick top, and then from there, it went back to a ewe lamb that uh, Ian Thompson, that used to be the, the manager of Lauren Simonton, mm -hmm. bought at Tom Cornthwaite's dispersal sale um, down in Lancashire. And then a few more generations back, it goes back to this uh, Kenna flock. Now, I'd never really heard of the Kenna flock. I did a wee bit of research, and uh, basically it was a, a Scottish businessman from London that owned a string of casinos in uh, Iran. <laughs> and uh, when the Ayatollah took over and uh, the revolution came on the scene, he had to make a quick exit. So <laughs> two hours to get out of Iran, apparently, and he only grabbed what he could grab. And uh, so basically, he obviously quite liked the idea of going to Isle of Man, uh, as you can imagine. Mm -hmm. So he, uh, he always had a farm there and decided to invest it in some textiles. So he headed off to France. Uh, in 78 and bought uh, something like 83 females and 22 males which was a phenomenal import when you think about it um, and it, uh, the following year um, he would lamb those new lambs and then he would maybe sell them in maybe either 1980 or 81 as a dispersal at Bambury and uh, that is where this female line that uh, the cowl boys have done so well with uh, has come from. Um, did, did he know what he was doing, or was he just driving around trying to buy things? Uh, he certainly knew what he was doing. Uh, Danny Creer's father, Colin, was taken on board as an advisor, so uh, they flew to Paris and um, basically got a, a gold Rolls Royce to chauffeur drive them around France, <laughs> all the top flocks, and... Uh, basically used briefcases of francs to buy their sheep and uh, uh, they managed to get them home and it was, it was incredible that that you is descended from but our cowl powerhouse is that same family as well so it's quite interesting really cool. uh, that's just a good story anyway and uh, of course you say Danny Creer of course uh, we'd know better for a Balaglone flock in Alaman yep and just going through a few tops here, I've got Wollastcott Red Star. I think he was a French import from Steve Williams down in, in, in Shropshire there, and uh, he was used on a lot of flocks, wasn't he, all of a sudden? Yeah, well, we, we actually bought a son of him, Wollastcott Talisman, in uh, 89 it would be, and it was a tremendous show top, and Steve had 
Mm-hmm. Really did a great job because he took him around all the royal show. I think he won all the royals that year with that. He, he was a show, was a showman and some, wasn't he? Yeah, he could bring the. It was sheep a out. tremendous sheep, right? And of course, um, in 1990, he had an on-farm sale. You know, on the back of the the show season he had just previously had, and that was where Charlie managed to buy the same female line as his 350,000 top. Is that you right? Know, I, came was, from, came I, from was, I was at the sale that day, like, and, uh-huh. uh, but Steve, Stevie always did his own thing and uh, brought, he was a, a Batho fan in France, so he would be importing regularly right through the 80s, 90s, and probably, I don't know when he would stop, probably late 90s, I would guess. Um, certainly, I've shown against him. In, in, when I got into the breed in the 90s. I certainly was a hard man to beat, that's for sure. And let's go back to some of the other early tups then. You had a tup called Titus Viscount, and he was a bit of an outcross, wasn't he, that did well? I'm uh-huh. guessing outcrosses were desperate to find by then because the genetics would just be, be tightening themselves into a knot a bit, wouldn't they? The, the way are, but um, he was a perfect example of a top, and that, this is where the Texels really score. He was a, a it was basically an unknown breeder, uh, and Matt Parker for Lancashire, and uh, it didn't really matter who you were, and it's still the case. You can turn up at a Texel sale, and if you've got the right top, you'll make good money. And I think we paid two and a half thousand for that top that day, which was quite good money in those days. Like, um, and you know, he bred really well, uh, especially across a. We had a top called Anne in Newsflash, who was by Turin Keepsake, and uh, we kept the son of him, Outflash he was called, and his his last daughter, out of Magerny, you, well we actually flushed, that would be some of the earliest flushing we would do, sort of 1989 to 89, and uh, we had a run, we had five U lambs, and one of them was like Cantonam, or 16,000 pound top, and Jury was another one, and, and then Cairn, and then the Yorkshire Show champion that uh, Doug right. Jewett had, they were all they were like mm. all five daughters. They were all different, but they all bred. Well, he, you know, they had consistency. Like so. he clicked, he clicked with her. Brilliant. And you mentioned uh, Annan Newsflash there. I'm just going to touch on some of the Annan sheep, Annan Jaguar, Turin Keepsake. You just said Torbert Northern Lights, Annan Premier Quartet. If I'm going through the alphabet, Annan 101. They were all extremely good early rams at Annan, and Keith was an exceptional breeder, wasn't he? And uh, he was known as Mr. Texel for a while, I would say. Oh, well, it was a fanta- fantastic, the hospitality he always received from his um, Keith and his wife, Margaret. Uh, but Keith was a, a pioneer of the breeding that he would always, he wasn't frightened to use his own, his own tops. He knew the female lines, and he knew what to cross and what not to cross. And uh, no, um, nobody will ever follow Keith. He was a, he was a unique man. Like. And his, his sheep would would go on and breed. Tups like Anna Nugget that did well at Stonefield Hill for Alec Brown, yeah, for instance. And, and they just they, they, you'd buy tups from him, and you didn't mind paying because generally they would go on and breed. Yeah, well, and in Masterpiece would go to the Yorkshire, Butry and Mellon, and these guys, you know, with the backbone of their flocks, mm. you know. So. And Keith was such a character, as you said, a likable man as well. And there was a lot of characters amongst you know, those early influential breeders, though, weren't they? I can name a few. Stevie Harrison was another one, and Garn Gower, and these boys were they were they were some characters, weren't they? Well, they were all familiar with breeding pedigree stock, you know, before the Texels came in, and and Keith would do some top border Leicesters, and a lot of the top. Glen Side, a lot of these guys up here were all border Leicester breeders mm-hmm. and, and maybe pedigree Acers as well. So they knew what they were doing and uh, it was a natural progression probably for a lot of these guys to move into Texels. Uh, I think it was that Flett said that uh, one thing about breeders the world over is they do like a party and I think there was some great parties starting going on amongst the Texel lines, didn't they? It was, oh, it was, it was a fun time. 
the Texel breed is they'll have some great parties after the shows and uh, no, there's a great uh, camaraderie. Uh, sure. I would say amongst breeders like and uh, it's it's one of the few breeds I think you've got that. And it's quite noticeable at the shows the the number of young breeders that you see actually around the judging rings watching, mm -hmm. and I think that's a good sign. Sure. A great sign for the breed. Sure. And moving on, the prices started to escalate, didn't they, by the end of the 80s as breeders paired up using AI to start with. And when did the AI first come into the sheep? It wouldn't be as early as the cattle, would it? Uh, um, we were flushing sheep in sort of 87, 88, 89. So but the AI would be earlier than the, than the ET, would it not? You would have thought so. The AI was in cattle in, in the in the late 60s and certainly commercially in, in, in the early 70s and it was a while before it got into the sheep. And a lot of these, the, the, the flushing would be done by Edinburgh Genetics originally, wouldn't it? That'd be, is that yeah. the Roslyn Institute, is that right? Well, it was Bill McKelvey was the, the first one to start it. Um, and then, uh, well, Edinburgh Genetics was bought out by, I don't know whether it would be, any of us at that time or so the early guys would be james Milne and, and ian mcdougall and of course yes. john yates who's now uh, um the chief executive of the society so uh have, john's got a, a long history in it too and back to some of these prices uh turin union twelve thousand. he was by a camwell sire wasn't he yep the camwell sheriff he did a good job for uh minority keith and robin hope as well would have a, yeah. something to do with union had a lot of tremendous show sheep. I think he bred uh, Annan Winner, which I think was the first time a top lamb had won the Highland Show Championship. You know, it was, it was quite an achievement. Like. Uh -huh. And then after Union, of course, we're following the alphabet. There was Sportsman's Warlord made uh, 26,000, I think. And then the year after, Craighead Yankee hit 27,000 to John Marshall and a few others. And uh, John Marshall had a lot of money, didn't he? I'm not sure how well Yankee bred them. Actually, when you look through the back breeding of some of those uh, Glenside Jews, there's a bit of Yankee in them. I think Paul Quick maybe had something to do with them as well. I'm not okay. sure. I, uh, when you look at the, the, the old photographs, you just wonder how they, they managed to breed a lot of those sheep, but <laughs> they definitely did. <laughs> and then we got Boltier Winston, of course, who did well for Muresk. And then the year after, Woodmarsh, all gold, 13,000. I think he went to that Dumfries consortium as well of Carolyn Hastings and Robin Hope and Kirtle, uh, as well as Annan. Absolutely. Like, he was a, a big, powerful sheep. I can remember him quite clearly. Like, um, But, yeah, he, he would breed for a few years, and uh, he, would do a, he did a great job for those guys. Like. Well, let's just move on to the fat stock shows for a minute. And we've covered the fat stock shows, certainly Smithfield, in a previous podcast. But... Uh, uh, when the likes of Alec Brown and uh, and Dave McCarrow uh, moved into Smithfield with the Texels, they pretty much took over the place, didn't they? Alec Brown and, and the McCarrow boys, uh, and then probably Robin Slade um, and a few others for the South would definitely have uh, uh, been right up there. We never ever showed at Smithfield. We did the Scottish Fat Stock show up here a few times, but... Uh, Doris Deer was another flock that would uh, show tremendous fat sheep and uh -huh. of course they, would, they had commercial use of other breeds as well so they would get Texel crosses into other classes as well you know and um, I think John Hall would be another one that would be showing those Texel crosses at the start before he moved on to the Bell Texes. Sure, you know? sure. So, we'll, we'll maybe just touch on the way that the Dutch Texels moved over for the Bell Texel in a minute or two. Let's just talk about the progeny testing that was done by the Society. There was a lot of it, wasn't it? There was a sire reference scheme and the elite Texel sires would be the beginning of the blood figures, wouldn't it? So the, the figures started with Texels, really. Would that be right? Yeah, I think so. Um, it, in those early days, those mid to late 70s, 
these early tops who came into the country, where they actually went to, uh, did a progeny test at Bog House, and it was Kenny Johnson's father, Bob, actually, that managed it for quite a number of years. So uh, that would be the set, the kind of foundations for the recording system that we kind of have now, in a lot of ways. And but, you'd be in uh, that from the beginning as well, though, you'd have bought yeah, it. We were always quite keen to to make sure Jimmy Minto was a great figures man, and uh, he was adamant that we should we should know what we've got. That was the, the criteria. You always know what you've got in front of you, so you know where you want to be. Sure, and what you can see on rather than seeing with your eyes. And you know, we've had this discussion in, in various other breeds. And would I be fair to say that the Texels led the way on figures? I don't want these angry Suffolk and Charolais breeders phoning and th- throwing mud at me, but uh, they, they did have a recording. They set up the flock down in in West Wales, didn't they? And uh, that's that, right. The whole thing. Yeah, I think they were just lucky that the Texels had the numbers, they had the flocks that were interested in, in recording, so they had a, a great nucleus, a great flock of, of sheep to, to record from, and if they've got numbers, you've got data, and then you can start doing comparisons and, and stuff like that. You and know? how did the sire reference, or the elite Texel sire, should I say, how did that work? They just used to all turn up on a farm with your best sheep, and then somebody would select the ones they wanted to put in the scheme? Well, I think in those, from the ones I can remember going to, basically you took what tops you thought were good enough. If you were good enough to use in your own flock, you would take them to the, the open day and they'd all be voted on and uh, there would be half a dozen were maybe selected and basically every member of the of the, the group had to use probably two of those sires. didn't matter which two they were. And but and that gave you a bit of a common link, and uh, it was this linkage that gave the accuracy to the figures that they, that they came up with at the time. So back then, that would be just based on an eight-week wait and, and a uh, 21-week wait, wouldn't it? Yeah. There wouldn't be any scanning back then, would there? I don't think that the earliest scanning... I think that it's probably about 30 years ago, the start of the backfat scanning, I would think. 1990-ish, I would have thought, like, that, made it, that was a big difference because you could actually see in front of you on the screen the differences in muscle depth it was fantastic it was recording um, there's a lot of flocks went down that road solely on recording and there's other flocks back then a lot of these breeders like steve smith and charles scott would would be the drivers behind that but didn't it get the sheep a lot bigger didn't they start to get the sheep bigger because of the figures Oh, there's no doubt about it At, at that time the figures were orientated towards growth and uh, some of these guys that were using figures, high index, high index, high index, they got some massive views. And probably the borders where Charles Scott was and a number of breeders like your Richard Oates and Arnold Parks for that area, they uh, they did a great job in promoting the Texel elite sires. It was exciting times, probably. It was. And, of course, at the time, the, the, the breed they'd be chasing on the terminal sire would be the Suffolk, and, 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 and those boys could put a lot of weight on those sheep because they'd carry a bit more fat, and the Suffolk breed is again going to be on the phone. The, the thing with the Texel, it, it was a leaner beast for that same big... Yeah, well, that was the thing. Like the, That was where Will Jackson proved the point. Like the, On the continent, for this export job, nobody wanted the excessive fat that the native sheep breeds had here like so uh, the, the Texel was a great way of getting a leaner and a higher killing out percentage. Sorry, would there be any figures in how much feeding it took to get those sheep to that size? I mean was that taken into account because we can all get a big sheep just got to give it yeah. a, bigger, a bigger bucket haven't you that's the thing but that was the thing with the uh, the sad reference scheme kind of came in because you had two different flocks perhaps through two different parts of the country uh, two different feeding regimes and uh, the offspring from the same ram was in both flocks so that was a great way of a leveler to know that 
whether it was genetic potential or out the bag potential. Sure. So, and that's uh, always been a discussion that will go on for oh, eternal, won't it? It's feed versus uh, feed versus well, it's, breed. It's, it's one that's quite topical on Angus' job just now. Is, uh, there's trials going on about being able to produce bulls and pups with less feeding, but you know it's all about conversion. Just so we can go back to these figures again, and then the, yeah, the specialist companies were involved, the likes of Signet, where they would produce the figures and send you booklets back of, or, or, yep, or, or yep. sheets back and of, of what your lambs did. And then we started getting personal computers in and people would uh, download their records onto their PC. And that's when I got involved with writing a software program that like, people could actually download their pedigrees and download their their figures and it all became very complicated didn't it and and a lot of people stuck with those figures and a lot of people poo-pooed them as they have done in in other breeds and it's gone full circle now where i think with a lot of people or with most breeders now i think figures are, are important if you want to get the big money absolutely if you you hit the jackpot if you can marry the two traits together decent figures and decent character and characteristics of a texel so the, the two should be the same really but um, they're definitely getting closer than they used to be, that's for sure. Good words, yeah. good words. And let's go back to some of those breeders again. Um, the Aberdeen boys, were they always had bigger sheep. They're big everything, don't they, in, in, in Aberdeenshire. And I'm going to get phoned up again from Aberdeenshire. But they just came along with a different type of sheep, didn't they? The Muresque and Haddo and, and, and later um, George Howie at the Nock. And these guys came in with some, with some top sheep, but uh, they're just hefty, weren't they? Well, I think they were at a great advantage to having a great land, you know, some tremendous land up there, and they could grow uh, smaller sheep into larger sheep, which, and it doesn't matter where you are, if you can sell a sheep that fills the eye, um, it'll always be sought after. And, of course, then there was the Northern Irish crowd who was strong, weren't there? There was Victor Chestnut and John Foster, Carson, Robbie Mulligan. These guys all had great sheep, didn't they? And uh, there was there was some uh, some massive crossovers. I bought my first use from Alan Cochran at Sunil, and uh, his were a bloody huge sheep he had. Oh, I know. He used to bring sheep to Lanark. They were like absolute donkeys, uh, tremendous big growthy sheep. Like, uh, I think Doug Nesbitt bought one, uh, Arnos, I think he was called, and... He, he went back and used semen maybe 10 years later <laughs> off the top light, you know, it was tremendous. But, Certainly had but some growth. And, and as the type changed then, there became the two types almost, didn't there? The Dutch type versus the French type. And you mentioned Dixon Smith at Lyons and Robin Slade was mentioned, Sylvia Rawlings. They, they flew the flag for the Dutch sheep, didn't they? Jan Rodenberg was one that, he was actually a Dutchman that lived in he would breed a lot of Dutch sheep. And then John... I think Sylvia Rawlings was Dutch as well, was she not? Aye, definitely. Uh, and these guys won all the, started winning the carcass competitions with the Dutch type of sheep, and it caused a bit of a divide in the breed, really, but uh, then the Beltex came along and interrupted that one a little bit, and maybe we'll mention them in, in a minute. But the breed also found its place as the top sire for breeding commercial females, and we touched on this at the beginning of the show here, uh, um, putting it on the blackest, didn't it? It was, was, was did a great guns, and also putting it on the big rangy mules, you, know, you were getting a compact but uh, high-quality commercial female. Absolutely. The, um, but they were crossing, they crossed well with the Chivia, and uh, there was a lot of guys crossed them and did really well selling these big Texel cross shoes and they were every bit as prolific as the mules if not more mm -hmm. and you were getting a far better trade for your cull ewes at the end of the day and uh, you were getting obviously a better confirmation as well. And that's still the case, there'd still be a lot of cross, cross Texel ewes on the hills these days would it? 
Definitely, yeah. The Texel Cross Blackie was one that we we graded a lot of uh, our commercial flock goes back to, and they were tremendous, easy fleshing and, and, and hardy sheep. Really good, like, really good. And the society grew very fast through the 90s, and other early successful breeders came in Robin Hope, we mentioned, Toby McTaggart, Craighead, Ettrick, Penstones, Hillhead, uh, the, the, the Campbell Boys at Cal, Baltier, and Glenside. And when I joined in 93 i think there were over 3000 members and i mean it became a big business it took a bit of handling didn't it, it run by a council of 20 people it was it was yeah it definitely was like it was big business at, at that point it still is uh -huh. yep. and steve mclean took over the helm we're not quite sure uh what year that was but uh steve came across from from the west coast of scotland somewhere didn't he and yeah we up in the in Gearloch, way up on the west coast, a very, a very bleak area, I can tell you. <laughs> uh, Steve, Steve was head of the, the ship for a decade and some. I haven't got the exact figures, but he went on to be one of the bosses at uh, Marks & Spencer's now. Robert, let's just go back to the tops for a minute. You guys had a good go in 1996, top in sale at 16,000 for Camwell Cantona, uh, but with a hell of an average that year. And Avril Evans and I bought a top out of that pen for a thousand, and I think he might have been the cheapest one in the pen. Thankfully, I sold a son for nine hundred in Bilth the next year, though, so he worked out fine for me. Yeah, we were very lucky. We, we bought a top the previous year called Timble Day One uh, for Stevie Harrison, and uh, he was by a top called Cam Your Man, um, which you know uh, bred exceptionally well. I think it was like eight, eight or nine years the guys got out of him and uh, yeah, a lot of his progeny would be lost through foot and mouth, unfortunately. But, uh -huh. um, but yeah, it was, uh, we had a good go. The Tim Day 1 crossed onto Titus Viscount was a great cross. Uh -huh. It was a good day at the office, I tell you. <laughs> uh, we mentioned the mares at Muresque earlier on, and they were great Suffolk breeders, but it wasn't long before they hit the straps in the Texels. And Indeed. Muresque Blondin came in at 33,000, and he went to Glenside, didn't he? Yep, exactly. Uh, well, we, we bought Muresk Top Lamb the year before, and he was 1800, so that was the step up they, they had aspired to once they realised how they could feed them, right? <laughs> I had one the year after as well. It cost a bit more than that, but there you go there. Um, we also from Aberdeenshire, there's Albert Howey at the knock. It uh, was in a bit earlier, I think, with some Dutch use that maybe came from um, from Dixon Smith at Lyons, but also I remember him bidding at Robin Hope's dispersal sale after Robin sadly died. And, Albert had more money than me bidding me on everything, and uh, he brought a great gimmer from Annan that day that uh, I think did him really well. And she goes right back to the early imports. Do you know about her? Exactly. I think she was she would go back to Annan Double Diamond, and uh, that you would uh, 0534, fantastic breeder for Howie, and he would sell daughters for twenty grand. You know, and any amount of sons between twenty and thirty thousand, like. Uh, fantastic breeding sheep and probably the backbone of his flock to this day. I think you know? I dropped out at a couple of ground and he might have paid two and a half or she certainly wasn't there. I think she was the Woodhead prefix. She was, uh, she was. And then by the millennium there was Craighead back again, this time with Craighead Hercules making a bit of a splash and at 50,000. He went to Margaret Lyons at Mill Bank and of course that was round about the time when Robbie Wilson started bringing out the sheep from there. And, uh, of course, Robbie eventually went on and bought the entire flock. And Robbie's a man on a mission, isn't he? He's never far away from the limelight. No, he's he's, uh, he's got fantastic uh, consistency through his flock from start to finish. And he's probably did more flushing than MD. Um, but uh, we were up there on a trip last year, or 
I wouldn't have the year before actually, and uh, he'd have actually new lambs like the top to bottom. I'm like, he's in a pod, but no, he's he learned his his trades at the Muresk and uh, learned learned to do the job right. Yeah, he did, and, and obviously came on from the Suffolks as well. Moving on through the alphabet, uh, Robert, time's moving on. Um, Top Hill Joe, he's the first one to clear 100,000, was, and he went to that consortium of uh, Aberdeenshire boys that we just mentioned. He wasn't a big sheep, was he? But I think he did okay for him. Definitely wasn't the biggest sheep in the world, but he had a bit of character about him. He was by knock impulse, and impulse uh, went through a lot of flocks as you can imagine when I took that kind of money was sold the semen sales were phenomenal for David Houghton <laughs> and uh, yep uh, a lot of Irish boys Galtie did awful well and the backbone of his flock would come from knock impulse semen I would think okay. he, he had two good lambs that day uh, top hill yep uh, and then Jim uh, Clark's Garngower flock started to shine towards the end of the 90s I suppose a slow rise to the top but uh, they're still right up there 20 years later aren't they in fact They'd have probably topped Lanark more times in the last decade than anyone else, I would think, would they? Indeed, yeah. yeah they, they've got two lines that are doing really well for them. Uh, one of them is a Dugan Hill. They'd buy a sheep at a, the Dugan Hill a reduction sale many moons ago. And then uh, a detox line, which is a kind of Dutch bred line from a breeder around about Carlisle I'd never heard of. But, um, but no, it's definitely a bred consistency and carcass and... It's a lot of these top boys, like you said, Jim Clark and with Charlie Bowden. When you've seen them judging, they always look for a good shoulder. Shoulder, shoulder, shoulder every time. Sure. And uh, they're getting rewarded for it now. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. And Jim would have been proud of his boys, of course, still carrying on that legacy in two, three flocks they've got there. And, and we move Indeed. on. Dave Rondale, perfection, hit the headlines, 220,000. So he's making the newspapers now. That's the pot of gold worth aiming for, isn't it? Indeed, you know, and he was a fantastic top. And to this day, I think he was still he was still made that money. He was a tremendous looking sheep. He had power, he had carcass, he had character, uh, and, and, and great words. And um, he goes back to that great uh, Glenside One Five One U, which goes back to Blockhouse Daffodil as well. Is that right? And okay. Incredible. And, and this yeah. year's fifty thousand gimmer. Uh-huh. Uh, was was as a descendant of perfection as well, okay. you know. And Top Hill Wall Street's another one, you know. So uh, he, he maybe didn't hit the headlines with first year offspring, but it's definitely in there somewhere, like, and it's come out. Okay, and uh, just move on to the show ring. It, it, um, talking about the females here, um, Lady Madonna from uh, Jimmy Warnock at Watch. Now she was quite a famous piece. She took some bit of beating at the time, didn't she? Oh, absolutely right. And uh, remember, Jimmy sold a good gimmer uh, as Select Seven uh, one year to Stephen Rennick, and he went on to win the Highland Show. So mm-hmm. um, Jimmy's been uh, bred some tremendous females over the years. Uh-huh. Yeah. Definitely. And actually, won. And actually, won the first show of Texels in 1978. So <laughs> was, it, was it Jimmy that won it? Okay, we found that. All right. And moving on, it was later. It was John Forsyth at the Glenside. It was pretty much impossible to get past at the Highland for nearly a decade, wasn't it? They, I mean, they. Yeah, I think he had one you that won it two or three times, but he had, he had a hell of a run, didn't he? I know, and he was never far away in interbreed either with those years, like mm-hmm. you know. And yourselves at Camwell, um, I think you had reserve champion at the Highland three times. Is that right, Rob? So, uh, to start with, the females didn't really catch up on the trade of the tops for a while, did it? And it was flocks like Ettrick who started to profit from their tremendous show success and their gimmers started to be in demand. And yeah, in the same way with yourselves as well, female breeders, and the joint in lamb sales became equally profitable as the tops suffered for a while, didn't it? I mean, the, the whole in lamb sale thing just took off. 
Yeah, well, it was 1996 that uh, we had the first collective in-lamb sale at Texel's uh, annual collective in-lamb sale. There were club sales. Before that, uh, the Scottish club had quite a successful January sale, uh, but Jim Clark and ourselves uh, got together and thought there was probably more potential in uh, having a, a collective sale. And the first sale was basically Jim Clark, ourselves, and uh, Jimmy Warnock, and we were... We were first in the ring that day, and uh, we sold the first prize gimmer for bigger show, and she made four thousand four hundred, which was a, a tremendous trade in '96 for a female. You know, that morphed into something you had called the Select Seven, I think, was the crowd of you in there, and that became right. one of the dates in the calendar to go to. And there was some great sheep turned up in there, but some big prices coming. Oh, it's absolutely, and uh, we sold one at sixteen thousand a few years later to Malcolm Reed, and. Mm-hmm. You know that was the top price was all of of all their lamb sales were never was mostly coming out of select seven. It was fantastic. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I mean some of these prices were more than you were getting for tops. As I said, it, it made the made your pedigree flock a lot more profitable when you can you can start selling gimmers at that money for sure. And 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 along with a few other breeders, I started the Welsh Borders Select sale. Then uh, we used to sell them in Brecon, and uh, it was a great way to shift a few gimmers on. And uh, it was also a good way to bring some new people into the breed. Well, absolutely, and it was always a an opportunity for the the grandfather to bring the grandson along to get him started into the breed. And uh, no, it was in a way of getting bloodlines that you know that folk went to the top sale but couldn't buy the most expensive top, but they get the opportunity to buy a, a gamer in Lantier. Yeah, and a bit more of a peaceful time as well. Not quite so hectic as being Atlantic, where you get a chance to chat to the breeders through the morning as well. So no, it was a great thing, a great thing. And it was that. a time, year, and it was a time of year, Andy. The sheep were naturally looking well in yeah. the autumn after tutting time. They were kind of blooming at that time. We didn't need to feed them hard. You know, it was just a time of year that you could almost pull them straight out of the field. Sure. And they would go to those in lamb sales and look good, like. Uh, you had your fair share of successes uh, uh, with the seamen as well, Robert. You mentioned that you exported a lot of seamen, didn't you, to to, to all over the world. Yeah, we've been fairly lucky. Uh, Not you personally, Robert, you're from your top. No. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Uh, we've, uh, I think because we were scrapey monitored uh, from the from outset helped, but um, but no, we've, uh, it was, I don't know, 2017, I think, we did a thousand doses to New Zealand, Sweden, Norway, uh, and then we've had Brazil and America. Um, we've had live sheep to... Uh, Germany, Belgium, Holland, Switzerland, Italy, and some of the Puerto Rico, Mexico is the last two most recent ones. But uh, Brazil's got a there's a huge potential in Brazil. Like there's 400 breeders uh, in Brazil, and uh, the, there's a real uh, real buzz about the breed over there at the moment. Brilliant, fantastic. Great to know that it's Fantastic. going worldwide, and, and some of our listeners come from Brazil, to be fair, and, and also it's, as well as America, you said earlier on. Let's just move on a little bit to the commercial uh, ram trade. The commercial boys got into the shearling ram trade, didn't they, I suppose, in the early 90s. Uh, on the back of the figures, there was specialist outfits like uh, Bill Quick at Loose Beer and Balagloni, we mentioned in the Isle of Man, and Charles Scott East Middle. These guys would have over 100 shearling tops to sell, and more maybe, and the Kelso and Bilth would have four or five rings of Texels, perhaps a couple of thousand of them at each sale, and they they needed figures for those, didn't they? It, it was incredible how a lot of the flocks with Charles would have quite a lot of grade nut sheep, but he would get to something like 400 big news, it was fantastic, and he was one of the pioneers as well of the, the five flock system, where you rotate the sires around each flock within your own flock. Um, don't know much about it, but 
he was an advocate of doing that. Well, because he was recording and not selling ram lambs, you could keep your best tuck lamb every year. You know, whereas, you know, we we're selling tuck lambs and shearlings, so you're uh, you generally sell your top tuck lambs. Mm -hmm. Whereas those guys could actually keep their top tuck lambs and then use them and then sell them the following year shearlings sure. and get the benefit two years down the line. You know. A great fellow as well, um, Charles was. I did quite a bit of business with him. In in a, a previous podcast, we mentioned how the 2001 foot and mouth devastated the limousine breed, and the same happened with the Texels, didn't it? The long-standing flocks like Annan and Court Hill, where bloodlines going way back to the beginning, got taken out. And but it did put a bit of a bottom in the female trade, didn't it? So for a year well, or so it... after that, uh, um, they were they were looking for, for for females. Keith came and bought some of his own breeding back from me, which was nice to see. Absolutely, and well, Steve Harrison was another one that lost his flock, uh, uh, you know. And there would be Jim Clark. He had these hogs. I think were down at Carlines, uh, so he lost a whole generation of you hogs. Um, so, but we all got good compensation. And when it came to the inland sales later in that year, they, they did spend their compensation, and there was some fantastic success stories come out of that line, mm -hmm. you know. Good, yeah, yeah, and moved it around, but uh, it is a shame to see that uh, that go, and hopefully that's never repeated. And that time also coincided with the imports of the Beltex breed, which I mentioned briefly, and it caused a bit of a stir. Didn't it? a lot of the Texel breeders dismissed them as being just another Dutch Texel with a with a Belgian pedigree, and didn't give them much thought. And then the breed started to gain a foothold. And I'm going to be controversial and say perhaps the Texel breed had lost, let their eyes slip a little bit from the carcass breed that they started with to the bigger boned animals and let these guys in, would that be true? Yeah, there's no doubt about it. The uh, the, the focus was maybe taken off the carcass a wee bit and more more to the finer points of uh, fancy bright eyes and bold alert ears and, and neglected the carcass a wee bit. But in, in saying that, we, we won the Highland Show carcass competition, I think it was in 94 or 95, something like that, and uh, the mother of that carcass would be the biggest ewe we had. You know, you can get massive sheep with big carcasses, and I think the, the Beltex boys have, have got width, there's no doubt about it, and they've got serious carcass, but if you want to be a dual purpose breed like the Texel is, you have to have the uh, length to, to sell females. You just can't sell breeding sheep that are short. You know, it's uh, so we, we've found our niche one way, and they've found our niche the other way. Uh -huh. but, uh, and there's room, yeah, there's room for you all, and that's good. Uh, that's good to know. I'm well, not going to go, despite the fact that I had a bit of involvement in both breeds. I'm not going to uh, stir that midden for just, just. You know. <laughs> I will stir the midden a little bit and say that the money was chasing the heads, and and uh, that would be fair, wouldn't it? I mean, uh, yeah, you got the best carcass in the world, but if you got a decent head on it, you you added another two two knots on the end. Uh, absolutely. Uh, no, there's no doubt about it. The the extremes. If you go too extreme of any. For any trait, you'll you'll come unstuck. So you have to come uh, the centre ground, and uh, longevity is a key factor that we we have to get back to. And I think a lot of breeders have realised that okay, it's nice to have the heads, but it's great to have a bit of growth, a bit of carcass, and and maybe we need. There's a lot of folk realising we need to get back to females that are feminine, mm -hmm. you know, and and not try and breed females that look like tops. You know, and I think uh, there is a there's a middle ground in there, um, and it, it'll sort itself out. The number of new members the breed has is, is fantastic. Like, totally agree with you there, Robert, and that's good to hear you say that. And of course, a lot of top Scottish blackface breeders are now at the top of the Texel breed. So Archie McGregor, Midlock, um, Hugh Blackwood, these guys, a lot of them are breeding not just sheep but all sorts of beasts, and they understand that you, the the, the all the traits that you need to breed a, a, 
a commercial female. You know, and and we can't talk. We can't talk Texels really without highlighting sportsmen's. Um, uh, Jeff Bowden started with some good use, and I think you know where some of those are, but at Melavale they're in, in Cheshire, and his bloodlines have been sought after. And then Charlie's a fantastic judge of stock, too. And I'm not sure how many times those guys have broken the breed record, but last year, 350,000 of a double diamond was unbelievable, wasn't it? And was he, was he the best sheep you've seen? Yeah, there's no doubt about it. He'd be up there, if not the best ever. I would have said he had the figures, and he had the good looks as well, and he he had tremendous power. So I'd be, I'd be very surprised if he doesn't reach something this year. That's for sure. And it wasn't just that cheap, but his average for tops and females would far exceed anything before him. I think, and don't know how much money he took out of the Texel breed last year. It was quite a bit. But to be fair, he splashed back on on a few gimmers uh, later in the year. And, Charlie's and a few other breeds as well, and he put some money back into record price limits and heifer, and uh, uh, he's a good guy to have in the breed. He's, he's, he's just a just a good good lifestyle. Well, he's stuck, he's stuck to a type, and, you know, he's, Bowden's farm is a healthy, up, it's an upland farm, like, and it's a good stock farm. Um, it's not like sea level and clean dairy ground, and, and that's probably one of the reasons why the tucks breed so well. Like, you know, over the years, a lot of his tops that he's bred have actually went on and, and bred really well for folk. Indeed. Absolutely. And, and Texels now are heading, as probably yourself are, Robert, towards the 50 years in the UK now. And uh, <laughs> the job has changed considerably, hasn't it? And uh... I've surpassed the 50-year mark, Andy, I can assure you. <laughs> well done. I feel like I've gone like 70 now. So, but the sheep have changed almost beyond recognition from those first sheep. You mentioned earlier on that you'd been to France on, on a trip and sort of seen the wool on them. And they've bred, the, in the UK, they've bred the wool off them now, hasn't he? So much different from the sheep still here in France and has that made them less hardy Robert? Well it's a school of thought that um, that, that extra wool was on them for a reason and uh, certainly the guys on the most harshest farms have definitely retained their wool, they definitely have retained the, the, the dense coats but you can have a, a really dense coat but it doesn't have to be long Sure. You know, you can have a, a short, dense coat that is actually um, not peeling. I think I bet a feeling the peelers are kind of went out of fashion a wee bit. But uh, it's every bit, when the weather's as cold as it is here just now, it's very important to have the white hair on the top of their heads as well. So when these lambs are born outside, and that's one thing the Texel has always had a great reputation for, was this ability for the lambs to get up and suckle themselves born outside and with, with having the white hair in their heads it, it makes a hell of a difference. Of course a lot of the top flocks now are bred primarily by ET don't they and, and uh, embryos out of big framed crossbred recipient ewes that uh, can get massive single lambs out and some of these guys are flushing 30 odd ewes a year and I'm going to keep quiet on this one and hear what you've got to say about it. Well you, if you've invested good money in a female you have a long time to wait if you're uh, just up in a naturally and hoping to get something back. So it is a, a hard one to tell somebody you can't flush that sheep, wait for a couple of crops of lambs out it, make sure that she's still alive and that she has got all the traits that a commercial sheep should have. But folk are not going to do that if they've invested heavily in that sheep. They want to get their money back as quick as possible. They want to get the genetics. Um, although there's definitely an argument for saying we possibly shouldn't be flushing new lambs, but if you speak to the top geneticists and other breeds like the dairy industry, they can't flush animals quick enough. 
you know, because they want a genetic turnaround. So I think we've all got to show a bit of responsibility and flush commercially sound sheep and uh, the breed will be fine. But just because it's got a nice big head should not be the driving force but deciding what sheep we flush. You know, a, a background of several generations of uh, of producing the goods, registered tops, and then flush, possibly the way ahead. But it's not going to happen because there's too much money tied up in the female job. The female job is is driven by the ET job, so the two are interlinked. And unfortunately, um, there's not a lot we can do about it. I don't think. Okay, I'll leave that one there. Um... I'm sure there'll be a few of our listeners raising an eyebrow, but it's nice to hear your opinion on that. And <laughs> moving on, Robert, yourself, you farm now with your wife Joyce and, and your family. How many Texels have you got there now at uh, at, at Camwell and bigger? Oh, well, consistently around about the 80, 70 to 80. We try and sell maybe something like 40 to 45 top lambs every year and run around 20, 25 shearlings and then sell about the same number of inland gimmers or gimmers privately. So, yeah, and then commercial sheep, we've run about 300 commercial sheep as a closed flock, so um, we have a good market for our commercial sheep as recipients, so yes, yeah, we run 60 suckler cows and a few pedigree angusies there as well, so yeah, keeps us busy. <laughs> sure. Well, you got family in, in business with you? Yeah, well, we have two daughters and they're both very keen in uh, farming and uh, both of them have been away doing a lambing and just, uh, one of them just came back today in fact so uh, yeah a great help and uh, not quite ready to put my feet up yet but uh, it's getting <laughs> you, closer <laughs> you're not, you're not going to put your feet up you start lambing next week which I, I believe you told me and uh, Robert you've judged a lot of shoes as well and, and uh, you've judged be all the royals I guess and, that you've done and um, some big classes as well. Some of those classes, the top lambs be a hundred sheep in a class. I mean, how the hell do you sort well, that out? I know. Well, the Yorkshire Show is probably the biggest entries I've judged, but uh, I judged the uh, Royal Ulster um, just actually about three days after my youngest daughter was born. So that was a nervous time, I can tell you. <laughs> yes. um, I remember uh, I was uh, I put a gamer champion that day uh, from Richard Henderson and. Uh, I was swithering about what to put reserve and uh, the second prize gimmer was a bloody good gimmer as well. Like, and I said, I'll just go with the, I'll go with the ewe lamb. So I went with Victor's ewe lamb and uh, so after the judging I discovered that the, the champion was, was by one of my tops, Camwell Darkey he was. <laughs> and uh, uh, I remember on the boat on the way back and Fletcher's looking across and he goes, aye. He, could, he knew fine they're putting a, a champion by my own top, and uh, I said it nearly was worse. I nearly put the second prize game on reserve. <laughs> you would have had something more about this. <laughs> You'd have made the paper that one. <laughs> and and uh, you've been on council yourself, Robert? No, no, no. I've uh, I've stayed clear of that department, uh -huh. and uh, well, no, I've always a bit of input and. All the council members are really good, and if you've got a grievance, you just pick the phone up, and ah, it's it's pretty good, like. Mm. And, and you see the, it's we we should wrap up now, um, Robert. It's been longer than this will be our longest podcast we've done for a while, <laughs> uh, because it's a subject I enjoy as well, because uh, I enjoyed breeding the sheep myself, and 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 still do. And um, where do you see the breed going from here? Then you think we're all in good hands? Yeah, I think so. I think we just have to watch we don't get too close to the bread. I think uh, that's the danger of the flushing and the AI. And, uh, the same bloodlines are going to be 
right through the break. But you know, when you look back in history, every year there's a new top comes to the top. It's a new flavour of the month, and uh, that changes. And if that's a new bloodline, the breed goes down that route. But uh, I, I think uh, there's enough diversity in the breeders. And the great thing about it is there's a lot of flocks out there that are breeding solid commercial Shearland tops, and they could have the next stock top for a lot of the top land breeders, you know. And who's to say that we wouldn't be going back to France? or at some of these other countries, you know, to get our bloodlines back. Robert, when you come back to France, you're welcome to come and visit me. Um, I'll get a bottle of white wine on in the chiller for you. It's been fantastic chatting to you. Um, as I said, we've known each other a while, and, and uh, I've always enjoyed your company, and I've very much enjoyed your company tonight, and I hope that uh, some of our listeners out there will have um, get a good insight into what the Texel breed has been through in the 50 years, and congratulations when that 50 years comes up. I'll be there um, joining in that party, I hope. Well done. Do you remember the party we had in Turriff? I don't know if it was your 40th or your 30th. It was, well, my birthday was always round about Turriff show anyway, so whatever, uh, whatever one it was. Ah, <laughs> uh, well, it was a good one anyway. What goes on tour stays on tour, Robert. <laughs> right, Robert, great to speak to you. Uh, I'll let you get back to your lambing, and uh, thanks very much for your time now. Cheers. Cheers, Andy. Okay, take care. Thank you for listening to our Top Lines and Tales podcast. You may like to take a look at our Top Lines and Tales Facebook page as well, where you'll find some photographs to back up this episode, as well as many more photos and discussions on similar topics.